11 FS offices in London for the episode 133 of Blockchain Insider, the show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you DeFi protocol hit by hackers, JP Morgan's quorum looks to merge with consensus, and multiple M&A moves in the crypto world. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by not one, not two, but three amazing guests. No, wait, four amazing guests. I had you there for a second. Uh, joining us in the 11FS studio. First up, we have Blockchain Insider regular, the one and only Aman Kohli, who's Chief Technology Officer at DXE. How are you doing, Aman? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, lots of news, lots of guests this week. Exciting week. It is so exciting. I have more people in the room with us. This is fun. Uh, I'm also joined by another returning guest, of course, Michael Coletta, who's head of blockchain and emerging tech innovation and strategy at the London Stock Exchange Group. Could you get any more things into your job title? No, I don't think so. And that's indicative of what's going on in the space, I suppose. Yeah, right. Just get those job titles going. Um, making a blockchain insider news show debut, I have, of course, uh, Rian Lewis, who's founder of the London Women in Bitcoin. How are you doing, Rian? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. So glad to have you on the show at last. Um, been around in the Bitcoin space for a long, long time. Genuine legend. So really pleased to have you on the show. Thank you. Pleased uh, to be here. And uh, you're coming out with a new book. What's that all about? Yeah, well, um, so many people ask me questions about cryptocurrency and obviously with the new wave of CBDCs and um, Libra and so on, there's a lot of confusion around it. So I wrote a book called The Cryptocurrency Revolution and Kogan Page picked it up and it's going to be published in August. Exciting news. Yeah. Well, look out for that, everybody. Uh, and finally, um, somebody who doesn't have a book coming out, but we're equally glad to have joining us, uh, is the one and only Ed Cooper, who's head of crypto at Revolut. How are you doing, Ed? I'm doing excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got a lot of news to get to, so shall we crack on? All right, the first story this week, we picked it up from Coindesk, but my goodness, you probably saw it just about everywhere if you're into the crypto space at all. DeFi lending protocol BZX has been exploited and a portion of ETH has been lost. So this past Sunday, the decentralized finance or DeFi project BZX reported an attack resulting in the loss of about 2% of its assets under management. Now, before we get into the attack or hack or whatever we want to call it itself, um, Aman, you and I, let's just talk a little bit about um, what actually happened here. What is, and I'll throw it out to the room actually, what's the definition of decentralized finance in, in your own mind? I mean, Aman, how do you think about decentralized finance as opposed to centralized finance? Yeah, so centralized finance is pretty straightforward. There's a you, bank or somebody in the middle. There's, there's someone who issues something of value and everyone takes snippets of that value. So imagine a big block of gold, yeah. everyone takes a gold coin and you go away, right? And, and decentralized being the, the idea of custody is there's not there's not necessarily a custodian, there may be self-custody or indirect custody. There is. Um, there's another bit of a layer on top of DeFi versus decentralized finance. So you can look at something like Bitcoin as being decentralized. Mm -hmm. But something like a DeFi does have an arbiter kind of sitting on mm -hmm. top, you know, a benevolent hand of God, mm -hmm. if you like, trying to make sure everything's okay. But let's just keep it simple. Let's keep it simple for now. And then um, there's uh, there's another thing that happened here. The the actual quote-unquote attack or hack or whatever you want to call it actually seems more like an extreme arbitrage opportunity. So what happens is it looks like somebody has uh, borrowed money and then gone long on one exchange and short on another. Um, and we'll get into how they did the borrowing of the money because that's where it gets really interesting. But why might going long on one exchange and short on another create an arbitrage opportunity? Okay, so I, I guess kind of rolling it back first, 
So what's the difference between a short and a long position? Yeah. So a long position is something you hold for a long time. Yeah. And time is variable in investing. For some people, a long time is a second. For others, it's years. Mm-hmm. So examples of taking a long investment is buying a stock in a company. It could be buying a bond that pays back over 25 mm-hmm. years. And an example of going short is you buy a stock very quickly and sell it, or you take an option. Mm-hmm. And then when the option expires, you make a decision on it. And um, then there are other things you can do as well as you can you can go short without actually owning that. So short is I'm betting that it's going to go down in value. Long is I'm betting it's going to yeah. go up in value in, in, in essence. I mean, I'm grossly oversimplifying here for the cap markets nerd to my left who works at the London Stock Exchange Group's benefit. But the idea being from an explainer level, um, I'm sort of betting it will go, the price will go up. I'm betting that the price will go down. And in so doing, um, the price index in this case, the, the people who provide the feed for the price, I'm moving that. Um, yeah. price index potentially because the spread has grown and if the spread has grown then I've got a bigger arbitrage opportunity potentially. Yeah, and it's probably worth just touching briefly and you know the, the, the exchange guy knows this better than most but the way exchanges work uh, when you make an offer to buy a share or you make an offer to buy a share there's kind of a register that keeps track of all of this. Buy and sell, the order book. The buy and sell order book and the length and depth of that actually determines the market price at that time mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of how open markets are supposed to work. Anything to add, Michael? Would you say that? I'm not, I completely concur. <laughs> yes, proud of that. The cap markets guy said yes. So then there's another interesting bit here that actually what was done was a flash loan. Now, this is where I'm going to open it up to the group. I mean, Rian, you've looked into flash loans. You you have some, some context with them. Explain what a flash loan is because this is a really interesting idea. Well, it's an amazing idea. And... Um, I think characterizing this as a hack or an attack isn't quite right Mm -hmm. because, in a sense, this is behaving exactly as designed. It's Mm -hmm. just that... Um, obviously, people who implemented did not realise that that was... It was not as intended, what, maybe, yeah. Exactly. It's the unintended consequences thing. So, um, the idea of a flash loan is that you are able to, um, in one transaction, mm-hmm. just um, borrow, take a position, pay back, all in one transaction. So, it just all happens. It's it's not sequential. Which, in I, theory, means the risk of that transaction is, is almost zero, if not zero itself, because I'm committed to in the same transaction, borrow the money, transact, take a position, and then pay the money back. Precisely. I mean, it's a really, it's it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. And you can't blame the person who's just walked away with, we're assuming it's the same person, mm-hmm. right? Both both um, both times uh, has now walked away with a million dollars worth of whatever. You know, they've spotted an opportunity and gone for it. And um, it's, I th- but I think concentrating on the flash loan part of it is probably not the root cause. Mm-hmm. It's um, the fact that they weren't diversifying um, what they were using for pricing. They were concentrating on, on, one, pr- on, one, on one price and that made it possible it's, to game that. So there's a couple of transactions that have gone through. The first one, um, they were able to uh, sort of, I think they borrowed something up to um, 10,000 ETH, which was nearly, I think, what, $2 million? And my maths may be way off here. Um, and so... Th- but the cost of that borrowing effectively was $8.71. So for $8.71, they were able to borrow that ETH. How is that even possible? I mean, how does that even scale? 
right? And, and so all of these questions sort of immediately come to mind because if it's happening in one transaction, can this only work in a market that's as small as DeFi is now where the, the gap between the, the buy and the sell between different exchanges is quite large because there isn't a lot of liquidity in these. Well, apparently these, it can't work, right? <laughs> well, as, yeah. as we see here. Um, but it's super interesting. I mean, Ed, do you have thoughts on, on what's happened here? Yeah, I mean, when I was looking at it, it did seem like it was obviously an exploit of liquidity, right? Yeah. So, yeah, looking into it a little bit more deeply, I wasn't so familiar with, you know, uh, what they were doing. But when I looked into it, it did seem that actually, so that big order goes through, but it actually tried to go through three different places, right? Yes. And in the end, there was only one place that had enough liquidity. Mm -hmm. And then because there's not that much liquidity, that hugely moves the price. So if there was much more liquidity, it wouldn't have been a problem. Yeah. And they were already sitting on a big position, so they were able to then sell into that change of price, right? Yeah. So it was was clever, but essentially market manipulation. So in a normal, uh, you know, regulatory environment, hugely illegal. Yes. But in this unregulated, I mean, interesting exploit. And I think that's the point here is market manipulation is not the same as a hack. It's it's They've used the system as it was designed, maybe not as intended, and market manipulation is, is, is a different thing entirely, Amon. Yeah, that that's precisely it. I, I think there are a couple of things here, right? So this is how it was designed. It speaks to a general problem with designing interacting distributed systems from a computer science point of view. How do you model these? How do you figure out what the exploits are, the ins and outs? And that's kind of a problem that we th- – We've seen in tech, yeah. you know, cybersecurity, time attacks, and time all again. of that, right? Time and time again, yeah. I think there's another part of this as well, which is the liquidity, and we've spoken about this before as well. Just small moves can change uh, a portfolio very quickly. And the other overlay is the regulated nature to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. But what I was struck by is the approach that the um, uh, BZH has taken to this, which is really about, you know, we're going to have humans interacting with this stuff. Yeah, and so BZX we'll came out and, and actually basically pulled the plug on, yeah. on what they were doing and sort of, you know, it's just like the giant, they hit the giant off switch. And in so doing, they were able to limit the the impact of, of what happened next. And so as a result, um, human inter- intervention is something that a lot of people in the DeFi and the, the crypto world actually don't like. Um, so it's it, it, it's kind of been, it's been really, really key. So I'm going to throw it to our cap markets guy briefly, uh, Mike, um, and just kind of ask you, um, what can Main Street learn from this and or DeFi? Because uh, th- there's something interesting and there's some intrigue here. Well, no, so I think, um, you know, I, I think it's funny. Uh, look, so DeFi, I find interesting in that, um, you know, you, you've essentially got an asset class, which isn't technically like a legally pinned asset, where we can actually, for the first time, experiment with uh, some of the fundamentals of markets. But I think the lesson to Main Street is they're just relearning the same lessons that we learned, mm-hmm. you know, in the 1930s, right, and before. So, you know, most But, but of is the- there something to changing how custody works? Is there something to these programmable transactions or sequence of transactions that's novel here, or is it just a tech upgrade? Uh, so... I think we have to look at it like, so what are we actually doing in finance today, right? So we're we're taking legal structures and scaling them. Here, you don't have a legal structure, right? You have a crypto asset. So you've essentially eliminated the aspect of governance from the system, and you have no underpinning of a legal system. So we are experimenting with the possible in technology, but then we're forgetting completely about the humanity and the reality of life, right, mm-hmm. that requires human intervention. So I think it's a mistake to say that you can blockchain your way out of fair and stable markets, right? It's just not possible. Uh, 
there's a sentence for, for, for the time. I can see my producer's eyebrows falling off their face to move as the next story, and I'm sure we could talk about this one uh, in depth, and we, we will. Um, but to spare the eyebrows of my production team, I'm going to move us to the next story. Um, next story comes from Reuters, and this is JP Morgan uh, talks to merge their blockchain unit quorum with startup consensus. So according to a Reuters report, JP Morgan uh, will uh, potentially merge with uh, the quorum, sorry, not JP Morgan entirely, with consensus. Whilst the financial terms are unclear, it's likely to be formally announced in the next six months. And background, of course, is JP Morgan built Quorum using the Ethereum network, and it uses the Ethereum network as well to run the interbank information network, a payments network that involves over 300 banks with the aim of allowing its member banks to exchange information and uh, verify sort of payments stuff that should be kind of kept private. So um, interesting that they're using the technology. Um, so it's been uh, a big couple of weeks for crypto. M&As. But before we get into the weeds of this story, we actually got a soundbite from uh, the person with the inside scoop themselves. Um, so here's Reuters' own fintech journalist, Anna Herrera, with her take on this. JP Morgan is in talks to merge its marquee blockchain unit Quorum with Consensus, the Brooklyn-based startup that was founded by one of the Ethereum co-founders. Sources tell me that the deal is likely to be formally announced within the next six months, but it's still unclear what will happen um, to the people that work for Quorum, around 25 people globally, and what the financial terms of the deal are. So the deal is interesting because uh, JP Morgan has been discussing a Quorum spin-off for basically two years. Um, the things that were considered, sources tell me, uh, included donating Quorum to a sort of nonprofit, like creating a sort of blockchain foundation. Um, they sort of proceeded with the consensus option because Quorum is built off Ethereum and consensus is an Ethereum shop, so sort of the synergy made sense. Um, one of the things that is important to note is that JP Morgan currently uses Quorum to run the interbank information network, which is that sort of payments messaging network that involves more than 300 banks at this point. Um, it appears that a deal wouldn't really impact the network and other projects. Another project that should run on Quorum is the JP Morgan coin. That wouldn't be impacted too, but there really haven't been any news on JP Morgan coin, I guess, since the announcement. So I don't know if there's anything that needs to be impacted. Already, that's what um, Anna had to say. Um, I think uh, fairly cut and dry that um, they're spinning this out. What, what did uh, what did you think when you saw this? Um, uh, maybe I'll start with Ed. What were your thoughts? So, <clears throat> for me, uh, the most interesting thing about it was if you uh, just spin back the clock a few years. Um, you know, any mention of uh, like a mainstream bank and crypto in the same sentence, they would just freak out, right? It was uh, for them huge uh, risk of reputational damage. And, um, you know, people were still considering crypto to be somewhat sketchy. And yeah, just the reputational damage for a bank to have their name even mentioned in a crypto article, it would have been, you know, hugely surprising, right? And now you've actually got JPM and uh, Consensus going out with this, uh, you know, press release that's actually good for both of them. And yeah, for me, that just represents like a huge shift in the way big banks uh, are thinking about cryptocurrencies and blockchain in general. So, uh, so that that for me was the most interesting part of the story. Do you think there's a, any consumer mainstream impact here? Is, is, you know, what does it mean for the banks and what does it mean for, you know, the, the customers of potentially somebody like a Revolut? Like, what does it mean for them? Does it mean anything? Or is, is, is this going to make a material Yeah, difference? I mean, I actually thought that was less clear. Mm. Uh, it's difficult to say what's going on internally there. Um, I mean, it, 
obviously they're getting like a really talented uh, tech shop to come in. Um, so maybe there were there were problems with the the tech. I'm not sure. I, I you know I guess Ripple they're trying to do something similar with X Rapid, right? And uh, haven't seen the adoption there either. So maybe again this is some problem that you need someone to come in from the outside and, and try and help with. I mean. If I could just interject, I think, you know, from my previous enterprise experience, right, um, I mean, this is just a question of core competency, right? So the, what's the business of J.P. Morgan, right? So it's not, you know, sitting there experimenting with something like Quorum permanently, right? Um, so I think at some, pl- at some point but in time— But off to them for doing this yeah, in the first no, place. no, no, no. So I'm just saying that, you know, at some point in time, it needs to find a home, the IP they develop. So, you know, this could— lend itself to, well, we'd rather have kind of a more strategic relationship with someone like a consensus that can actually take this on, perhaps open source it, that's already kind of connected to the Ethereum community, whilst we still benefit from everything that we did with R&D in the past, right? So it's just more of a find a home. I'd like to be reasonably cynical about this, actually. Go right ahead. Um, I'm looking at uh, something else that happened a couple of months ago, which was Parity spinning off the Parity client and um, saying that they wanted to turn it into a DAO. And I think, uh, obviously, Parity's a very different beast from uh, a big bank. But um, I think people are realizing that there's a lot of very boring, expensive, dull maintenance work to be done with big infrastructure type Mm -hmm. projects and spinning it off as you say, allows someone else to kind of take that on. Yeah. Um, they d- whereas they kind of get rid of it, they still retain the kind of kudos from having developed it. Yeah. Maybe that's why EY out um, open source Nightfall as well. Yeah, so I think it makes sense. I mean, consensus have um, what um, block apps, Bezu, and then they'd have Quorum, which is which is a pretty big collection of the enterprise Ethereum space. Well, I mean, and, and that's precisely it. I mean, Quorum was initially set up as a reference implementation for the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Um, and his big thing was to move away from proof of work to proof of stake. Mm-hmm. Right now, Ethereum, the next version, is going to be incorporating more proof of stake elements. So the need for that sort of spike is not necessarily there. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is to that point of, you know, do we really want to maintain it? Is it our core business? But on the other side as well, as consensus is restructuring and becoming more enterprise-friendly and focusing more on building out uh, financial services solutions based on that, it's it's an easier conversation for them to have. How do, how do you guys feel about this in the context of everything that's happening with China's DECP, Libra, the recent announcements from Christian Kahl around the US dollar coin and, and where JP Morgan plays in this? Because potentially outsourcing the, the technology code base itself doesn't mean that they can't still play a role in that, or, or does it? I very much doubt Quorum would be a suitable mechanism for something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think they're losing anything by outsourcing it. And you have to remember anyway, they have um, their JPM coin mm-hmm. that they're using internally anyway. I've, I've got two in my pocket. Yeah, I think they, you know, again, it's core competency of the bank. So, you know, they probably will retain some IP rights to that and they're focusing on their actual core business because, Again, we're looking at like JP Morgan coin essentially is just pointing to assets on their balance sheet, right? That they're netting off between entities um, mm-hmm. so that you can benefit from some efficiencies, just like HSBC um, uh, uh, FX Everywhere project, yeah. right? In the public domain. Um, so I think, yeah. It, it just seems vaguely sensible, and any, the, we can we can probably just noodle for for one second your soundbite version of therefore um, sort of taking the other perspective, um, the DECP, the Libra. We've we've covered covered those quite a bit, but um, Ed, I just want to throw it to you because we haven't had you on the show and, and having views of those. Do you think these big sort of 
headlines happening in that space are, are realistically going to change lives of, of of people and their money day to day anytime soon, or is this still all sort of movements of uh, people in back rooms that don't really matter? Yeah, I think uh, the um, the impact will take quite a while, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, Libra, there's obviously some problems. I think uh, it didn't help. Um, you know, Facebook were obviously and still are going through quite a period of. Uh, you know, uh, people questioning their motives and things like that. And so it probably wasn't the best <clears throat> uh, for optics mm-hmm. for them to then come out and say, we're going to do this uh, kind of world-eating coin that everyone's going to use. I like and- that world-eating coin. When does it, when, when ICO. Um, speaking Indeed. of which, I'm going to move us to our ad read. It is time for a shill, after all. Um, this episode is brought to you by our good friends at R3. Um, and R3's quarter platform is known for its uh, enterprise-grade privacy, security, and scalability. And because quarter was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any size, shape, or industry. Uh, and with quarter, every business in every industry can live the power of blockchain. Free trial of Cordero Enterprise is available at r3.com. Head over to check it out. Shout out to Todd McDonald, friend of the show. Alrighty, <laughs> on with the news. Uh, next story comes from Coindesk, and this was about Lightning Labs raising a $10 million Series A to, quote, be the visa of Bitcoin. Um, so uh, Lightning, if you've not heard of it, is uh, kind of... Um, one of these uh, second less scaling solutions for Bitcoin. So the idea that, oh, well, Bitcoin, you know, it takes 10 to 15 minutes to be able to really move things around. It's too slow and uh, all of these concerns that people throw at it. So Lightning payment channels um, are a potential solution to that. Um, and in these payment channels, you can potentially uh, have merchants and, uh, you know, almost real-time payments as if it were, were Visa sitting in that second layer solution. So this, this raise is really uh, about kind of scaling that out as an organization um, and, uh, you know, kind of moving from there. So um, what do we think on Lightning and as a concept of second layer scaling? Rian, I want to start with you. Okay. Um, I actually built a little Lightning point of sale, um, mm-hmm. little uh, Arduino type thing at, a, at a, a workshop at a conference recently. I was amazed by how easy it is. I think um, Lightning is such an interesting technology. It's fascinating that until now it's been, it seems to have seized people's imagination and it's got a lot of enthusiasts mm. in the community. Um I think the problem will be if people start relying on it as a core technology before it's really, yeah. before it's ready. Um, but I think um, Elizabeth Elizabeth Stark's a really inspirational person. Mm-hmm. I think they've achieved a lot with a very very small number of developers at Lightning, mm-hmm. and it's great to see them having the resources to to move forward. And what sort of Ed? What sort of problems might this solve? Like, why do we need a visa of, of Bitcoin? Um, is it something that's needed, or is it sort of? Um, yeah, yeah I, I think it's uh, hugely exciting. I mean, um, if you look at Bitcoin, and everyone kind of compares, uh, you know, Bitcoin uh, to the internet, and how the kind of complaints about both of them have mirrored each other, mm-hmm. right? So, in the early days of the internet, it'll never scale. People are saying now, Bitcoin, it'll never scale. And um, with the internet, it was like email came along. You're not going to be able to handle that. Then clever people figured that problem. Out right, and then it was like, okay, but now you've got email attachments. How does that scale? And then people figured it out. And so I think you've got you're seeing Bitcoin go through that same process, right? So oh, Bitcoin it'll never scale. So the Lightning Network that's a great second layer solution to solve this problem. And uh, then imagine the things that can then be built on top of that, right? So for me, it's it's not just this, which is great. It's all the other things in the ecosystem that you can then build on top of that. So if you look at where the internet ended up, like Netflix, now you never would have. Pre- 
predicted that in 97. Yeah. So it's uh, super exciting. But 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 again, the internet at least is built on some strong fundamentals where, you know, here what you're doing is you're kind of, it's almost like what's happening in finance and the whole reason why we got into this whole crypto um, paradigm in the first place. It's that, um, you know, we're, you're creating a two-layered two solution that has to reconcile with the underlying blockchain, but the, the, the foundation is not strong, right? In other words, it's not strong in the 10 to 15 minute transaction window. So if I need to cross outside of Lightning, well, I've got a problem. Mm-hmm. So now I'm building, rather than building on a strong foundation, I'm building on this kind of slow piece of infrastructure. So it doesn't really. Yeah, you, you risk the recreating way. the maze, right? So yeah. you have a lot of. It, it's interesting that finance people view, uh, in, in my experience, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong here, as as we're sort of recreating the maze a different way. It's it's the same problems being encountered, but in a different way. And 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 there's a questionable benefit to recreating the maze. It's it's forcing you in some way to solve the same problem. So one, I'm a big fan of Lightning. I like the way it's been implemented and what's come out, and I kind of agree with everything that's been said around that. Um, but if you kind of look at the first story, this one and, and, a, and a following one, there's a little bit of too much mirroring of doing financial transactions as they are now. Mm. And I think what we need to do is – and you know, the market will help us figure that out, is what are these next-level translation but transactions to, to that Ryan's work point there? A moment ago, isn't there something really nice about the permissionless innovation of enthusiasts coming yeah. up with things? Like, where are the... Like, I know Visa has APIs, and I know they've they put a lot of work into their developer network, but also to become a certified Visa developer, I have to jump through all kinds of yeah, hoops. Huge barriers, right? Yeah, it's really Massive. hard. And, and like, to, to mess with a global payment system, I can probably see why. I mean, it's not unwarranted, but then what does the enthusiast do? What does the hobbyist do? And it was Chris Dixon wrote a blog post a couple of years ago from A16Z that sort of said you could level a lot of these criticisms at Wikipedia when it started. You never cite it for universities. You could It was easy to graffiti. There was every problem with it. And Microsoft Encarta was this wonderfully well-built product with, with kind of multimedia in it, and it made a lot more sense. And by the way, you were just going to have to solve all the problems that Microsoft Encarta had come with. How am I going to catalog this stuff? How am I going to distribute it? And Actually, there's a fundamental shift here, which is really about that governance model is what makes it scalable in a different way. But in order to get there, there's there's some interesting challenges. I think you can get exponential innovation, right? If you push, uh, if you push the innovation to the edges of the network, then you can get some kid in his bedroom who comes mm-hmm. up with a good idea, and then and then that that massively can um, help this landslide of change, right? Whereas uh, some kid in his bedroom is not going to be able to upgrade the SWIFT network. It's just not going to happen. So you kind of crowdsource mm-hmm. huge, huge innovation. Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental of having, you know, created some kind of open access to what is value transmission that's outside of the banking system has, you know, inevitably led to a lot of benefits, right? That's what's taken us down the road of, you know, even looking at how we innovate financial market infrastructure, let alone, mm. right, anything else. So, I mean, I think... It's the perfect experimenting zone. But but again, if you can't blockchain your way out of it. Right? And yeah. it, there's always uh, mirroring, I think, in new tech, right? Again, if you look at um, when uh, phones first came out, it was all skeuomorphic design mm. because it was new. And so it was like, here's a 3D button to help you know what to do. And then everyone went to flat design because now everyone's used to that. And then people figured out, actually, we can do loads of different stuff with like touch gestures and this kind of thing. But I think mirroring at the beginning is, is kind of normal. You know? And you see this, I mean, even if you look at the uh, the railroad uh, revolution in, in the, the Old West sort of hundreds of years ago, what you see is when people are building bridges initially, they build them out of wood. And then, of course, this new technology, iron, comes along. But how do you use iron? Well, you build 
people start with, well, I need rivets like I would if I was building a wooden bridge. And then what they found was a lot of trains, as soon as they drove them over the iron bridges, would collapse because the type of rivets I need and the welding I need for iron is very, very different to what the yeah, wooden sure. material needs. So, yes, it is a stronger uh, sort of uh, underlying tensile strength of a material. But if I try and use it the way I used to use the old stuff, I won't actually get the benefit. And it takes a while to realize yeah, how I use this new it. thing differently. But, but I find that there's actually an absence of mirroring as well. So when we look at like the entire ICO mm. collapse, oh, you know, we need to, you know, democratize finance. Actually, I, I thought it was closer to democratizing bankruptcy, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so <laughs> again, um, well, well, I mean, how many ICOs, you know, yeah. um, right? I mean, there's the I pod. I mean, EOS did all right, but... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's one. Good. Um, no, no. But uh, again, again. So uh, it's not all mirrored, right? And all lessons weren't learned and repeated. Well, but that's the thing. The, the fundamental laws of the universe still apply. Like the the still all of the things that we learned. You know, like to take the iron road bridges. Like you still need to know basic architecture. You still need basic maths. You still need all of that stuff. So so a lot of those lessons could be learned. The, I think from both sides. The purists would say, no, you don't. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting journey to watch. I mean, sure, we could talk about this one for a while, but I, I, at the risk of um, damaging my producer's eyebrows any further, I'm going to move us to the next story. Um, this one comes from Cointelegraph, and this is about ICE snapping up a loyalty program provider, Bridge2, in order to boost backed consumer play. So the Intercontinental Exchange, um, uh, the Bitcoin warehouse parents company, uh, has announced earlier in the month that it's agreed to acquire this Bridge2 Solutions, a loyalty uh, provider for both merchants and consumers. This means that their backed platform will use funds from its ongoing Series B fundraising to acquire Bridge2 and apply its tools to its consumer apps. So the CEO of ICE, Jeffrey uh, Sprecher, told Fortune magazine that he envisioned Backed's app as a direct payment system, not dependent on services provided by other third parties, and that making rewards like cash would be a step in that direction. This feels like ICE is trying to compete. With, ICE is back with a brand new mission um, to compete with Visa. Stop, I, I, collaborate, and listen. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a network effect play. I mean, this this this, pur- this purchase specifically. And then the other play here is that typically an institutional-facing uh, entity is, is, is created this kind of um, funded, backed entity to focus on retail, right? So they're, they're, they're playing to the platforms. They know that they have the fundamentals at the institution, and they're trying to build up their, their network effect. Ryan, what do you think about when you look at things like this? It's, this is more of a, a pure Bitcoin sort of play, trying to make mass adoption, but it's coming from uh, really a, a financial services incumbent back the other way. What were your thoughts when you saw this? Um, I think... In terms of consumer-facing apps, the more of them, the better. Mm. I think uh, that's the thing about the whole um, Bitcoin-specific space. It's a broad church, isn't it? It encompasses Mm. people who um, want complete decentralization and Mm -hmm. it encompasses people who want things to be convenient. You can choose. That's the beauty of it. But as far as this specific acquisition goes, um, I sometimes wonder if it's um, better to focus on productive partnerships rather than for companies to go ahead um, and acquire things that aren't really their core competencies. Core competencies. Again, Ed, what do you think? Do you think that this is a problem that really needs solving? Do people need loyalty around their Bitcoin or is this more of a loyalty just hasn't been done well? I mean, I saw the story and it didn't make me excited. So uh, read into that what you will. Yeah, I just didn't feel like it was breaking new ground or doing something particularly useful. Uh, So I I don't know. Yeah, I I didn't really have strong feelings about it. So not a network effect kind of thing? Not for me. Not for me, no. Yeah, Yeah, so actually I think this is a great use case for consumers 
and also loyalty programs because right now the way – sorry, my deep dark past, I've had to administer loyalty programs when I worked in a bank. Oh. It's hell. <laughs> it's Poor just – it's not nice, right? And there's been a reasonable amount of activity of applying either blockchain in some form uh, to loyalty programs. And what makes this interesting is if if you can use an underlying uh, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin to back a loyalty program – um, it, you give it some sort of intrinsic external value, mm. but then if you then also pivot it to something slightly different, you know, um, ICE is also looking to buy eBay, you suddenly have potentially this network effect of a payment platform mm. for eBay, a subset of it's eBay users. Pay, the PayPal's playbook with eBay. It would be a fun, fun story of the internet making a full circle. Well, only fewer rockets, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. All right, so the last story this week comes from CCN.com, and this is about Bitcoin's price soaring uh, around about the same time, correlation causation, as Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell confirms crypto's threat to the US dollar. Um, so the price of Bitcoin jumped to $10,000 after he stressed that the Fed is investing significant amount into digital currency developments, and Congressman Bill Foster raised concerns about the need to keep pace with China's digital currency ambitions, which Powell Powell responded, the Fed has a lot of projects underway, making it clear that the U.S. was doing its best to keep pace. I have a problem with this headline, though. So I actually looked into this because, I mean, this is this is obviously a topic near and dear to our heart, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, he never said, confirms crypto's threat to the U.S. I watched the I watched the footage. Um, I, you know, I almost see this as, and this speaks to the, the broader kind of crypto market as, uh, I've got a news website. I know this will change the price. Take a long position on Bitcoin, pump this title up, up goes the price, mm. sell the Bitcoin, make some money. But... Um, but yeah, I mean, the rest of it's you know pretty much true. This is really a story about DECP in China and the U.S. dollar and the, the the geopolitics, right? I mean, is that is that everybody anybody wildly disagree? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I met the uh, uh, Chris Giancarlo actually um, mm-hmm. in a recent trip to Switzerland. Um, oh. Yeah, so um, how is old Crypto Dad? Oh, Crypto Daddy, uh, he's great, uh, fantastic guy, right? Um, so I think you know he's again focusing on you know the reality that you see right in front of you, right? So the you know the U.S. hasn't made a move yet into the um, digital currency space. Um, Ch- China is is coming in, coming in, and they you know possibly need to have kind of a knee jerk reaction, or they need a solution when it comes uh, when it comes to light. And of course, who would be better to do that than a trusted former? Regulator, right? Uh, yeah, indeed. Christian Carlo is well placed, but maybe Libra are well placed as well. I mean, who, who can who can do something in this space? Well, I thought it was interesting that this week um, I saw some news that um, Libra are considering a pivot to being like a dollar stablecoin yes. instead of being backed by a basket of currencies, yeah. and. Um, that really changes the nature of it. And I wondered if this was a result of conversations with regulators, because while it's backed by a basket of currencies and effectively Libra has its own kind of monetary policy committee, mm-hmm. it becomes a really dangerous, scary thing. Mm-hmm. If it's just a dollar stable coin, it's a lot less of a threat. Yeah, so suddenly USDC from Circle and Tether start to look a bit different. Well, well, what I think is curious here, though, is that we, when we think about like, you know, we go full circle with all this stuff. When you digitize central bank money and you, you can imagine, you know, a digital dollar, or any digital currency, you're, you're um, basically down economic questions about central bank reserve lending, right? So all of a sudden, bank deposits go down because I can have my own wallet. Then how do we lend money? Mm-hmm. So we come down to these kind of fundamental economic questions and then data privacy, right? Yeah, well, I, I 
we'll say it, listeners will be bored of banking Bank of England Working Paper 605 from 2016. Yeah. But that was the first to really discuss the the difference between, you know, do we really want narrow banking and every consumer to hold uh, sort of effectively a claim on the central bank's balance sheet? Or do we want to have a commercial banking system in which money can be created? Um, and did that serve an economic purpose and a societal purpose? To which the conclusion, for the most part from the economist, was yes, it does. Therefore, what's the consumer problem and what's the market problem to which the answers appear to be something around payments are too expensive and there's too much friction in them. And for consumers, the experience isn't always what they want it to be. It's not near free. It's not near instant. And how do you start to solve those? And actually, if you start with that as a problem space, something like central bank-backed digital currency starts to make more sense, but also something like account-to-account payments and good old fintech like Revolut and many others start to make a lot more sense. So, yeah, how, how this plays out for consumers. What, what did you think when you saw this, Ed? What, the... Um I think always uh, tying some piece of news to Bitcoin's price is always dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I think, as you said, correlation, causation, who knows? Uh, for me, I don't know, if, if we're talking about the, the price movement, I think there's there's usually a bit of volatility and a bit of movement as you're coming up to a halving, right? Mm -hmm. And that, But that's usually overstated as well. Like, people overestimate the impact of it. And so it seems that usually comes in, kicks in, like, it's longer term. It's like uh, maybe a year down the line. Mm -hmm. But so I, I kind of thought it was more about that. And then, yeah, in terms of uh, the other stuff, yeah, it's really interesting um, if Libra, you know, pivots to kind of being more a, a USD stablecoin. Because uh, I can't remember where I read it. I think I did read that the US, they've been wargaming scenarios where they're no longer, the dollar is no longer the world's like reserve currency, which would be a huge problem. And obviously that was probably why people started to get a bit nervous about Libra. They, they, get, they get jumpy. I mean, what's the future I, of money is going to be the, the big question. Yeah, I, th I think there's a, piece here as well that a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, we, we have some central bankers, some politicians, and God bless them, politicians are lovely people. But sometimes what happens, they hear about something and they just check which way the wind's blowing and, mm. and push into it. You know, if, if you just take a step back, compared to the number of US dollar transactions versus all of cryptocurrency transactions, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a vast difference. Yes, there is a tide. Yes, there is a need. And I think to that point of the Bank of uh, England research paper, there is an opportunity to pivot the way money is used. And we've seen huge changes in the last 20, 30 years of how money is actually used and deployed and value is created. And then there's a ton of interesting questions about what does programmable money mean for policy, macroeconomic and microeconomic policy? What does um, programmable money mean for data privacy? What does data privacy mean for AML and KYC? What should this thing actually be? And the technology is not the hard question at all. It's the economics and the, the social and the governance questions that really start to come and where does that fit into the rest of the world? Yes, yeah, so um, I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, partly because of the whole process of writing the book <laughs> and also because it's stuff I've been interested in for a long time. And it's hard to see once the technology exists, governments um, not using it just because the technology is there and especially mm -hmm. presumably the Chinese government's going to use it. So you could take a situation, for example, like um, Japan, where they've been desperately trying to inflate the economy for decades now and how programmable money would allow them to target specific sectors so that people can't hide helicopter money under their mattress. Mm -hmm. um, so cultural factors then get overridden because people have to go 
out and spend it on a particular type of consumer good mm -hmm. or, as you say, monitoring. We've seen with the um, whole coronavirus situation in China how um, they've been able to leverage their surveillance mm -hmm. to do particular things. And if programmable money makes that a lot easier, it's, or it's reasonable for people to say, oh, yes, governments shouldn't do that. But once the technology's there, if they can present a positive case for doing it, most people will go along with it, I think. Yeah, and I think Singularity University a few years ago came up with a simple use case for programmable money, which is real-time co tax collection at the point of sale. So whenever I go and um, buy something at the point of sale, that tax is collected by the money itself, you know, by, the, by the payments network itself, because I don't understand uh, what the skew level item is that's being bought, and therefore what the tax treatment of that should be. If, if you actually look at the way HMRC here have uh, implemented over the last couple of years this regulation mm -hmm. that SMEs need to pay as they go, basically, yeah. their tax obligation back. I think it's VAT mainly. That's a great use case of how you actually program that into your existing financial infrastructure. I mean, to do that right now with what we have is awkward. Yeah. And, and how do you take what you've got and move it where you need to? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, though, the UK is probably materially farther ahead with uh, with its banking system than the US. I mean, y I mm. came here eight years ago and was amazed that, it, oh my, you have this thing called faster payments that can instantaneously send money to any bank, right? The US still isn't there. Mm. Um, so I think to the extent that the, the, the payment rails uh, of a particular nation are, are not sufficient, right? This has a little bit more of a case to be made. Mm -hmm. But I think the UK is probably pretty far Ahead. Yeah, th this conversation looks quite different in the UK when you're looking east and you're looking west than it does when you're sitting in Washington, I, I would imagine. But hey, um, I'm sure we'll come back to this one time and time again. Um, there's a ton of stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Um, one from Cointelegraph about Telegram dropping their technical white paper. Uh, <laughs> um, the SEC is trying to, to halt them. Um, of course, uh, Forbes uh, talk about uh, Walmart Canada and DLT Labs launching the world's largest industrial blockchain application. Good on them. Um, Bloomberg, FC Barcelona are going to issue tokens for a blockchain-based fan platform because blockchain. Um, <laughs> the block uh, story here, um, blockchain uh, scaling network Scale, S-K-A-L-E, has chosen a launch partner um, for Consensus CodeFi's Activate token platform. And story from the FT.com, uh, cryptocurrency specialist DAG Global to push for a UK banking license. So let's see if they get that. Now it's time for Twitter of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from the one and only Nathaniel Whitmore, NLW on Twitter. Uh, shout out to Nathaniel. Um, slow week in crypto VC and M&A, just lightning raising 10 million. Um, ARWEN Secure raising 3.3 million, Pull Together raising a million, Securitize adding Sony to a $14 million round, uh, TP Finsys raising 14 million, Consensus buying a broker dealer, Backed buying Bridge 2, and Ice making an offer for eBay. You know, not much happening. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think uh, the crypto side of the world and blockchain side of the world is good value investing Yeah, by the looks of it because, you know, if, if you're going to be setting up a bank, you need hundreds if not billions of But I thought we were dollars. in the, the, the trough of disillusionment. I, know, I mean, look, I've got some of my random friends asking me how to set up Bitcoin wallets, right, and and asking about onboarding under crypto exchanges. So it's usually a good sign for crypto if I'm getting, you know, Those people, questions. What's time driving this? We, is, is it just like a cyclical thing? Is it a price thing? Or is there actually um, sort of something really changing in financial markets or or, or, or like, is it the the conversation around DECP and that? I think it's Libra. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I think, you know, in fact, um, what was his name? Um, uh, Jerome Powell, right? He was giving a lot of credit to Libra. I generally give a lot of credit to Libra for forcing regulators and policymakers to dust off their white papers that weren't public, right, and publish some of this research and take crypto and blockchain seriously. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, here, here, hope, let's see. Keeps hope, hope that keeps happening. Um, Ed, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you agree with that? Was, is this the Libra bounce? Is the material change going to impact consumers? Like you said, I think a moment ago. Uh, Maybe it's a little ways out, but we're seeing this start in, uh, start in some different places. Yeah, I think uh, Libra obviously <clears throat> made the conversation much more mainstream. But also I think uh, you know, governments are starting to see uh, that they have homegrown successful crypto businesses who are you know, paying quite a lot of tax. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's starting to become a bit more attractive. And also the stigma over the years is definitely you know, dropping and dropping as it, the space just becomes more and more sort of you know, regulated, reputable, and uh, people can see it could be the next tidal wave of tech. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think that definitely helps. Good stuff. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's news. I know it, was, it felt like it went fast, didn't it? There's so much going on. So that wraps up this week's show. Um, just to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy and product company working to shape the very fabric of financial services. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Ed? Uh, Revolut.com or on Twitter, Ed Cooper Tech. Ed Cooper Tech. All right. Uh, how about your good self, Michael? Um, actually, I don't have a Twitter. Uh, that's by, by choice. <laughs> I don't uh, have one of the Twitters. I don't have the Twitters. No, no, I, uh, I don't. Um, LinkedIn. Uh, it's Coletta with one L and two T's. Uh, nice one. And Rian, how about you, sir? You can find me doing engineering consultancy on about a zillion different projects and mm. on Twitter at, at Rian underscore is. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And, and Aman. Uh, corporate websites, DXC Doc Technology. Okay. And you can reach me on Twitter at A. Coley. Uh, warning, it's not corporate. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, you can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter or email me directly, Simon at 11FS.com. Thank you, as always, to our amazing guests. Uh, our production team here at 11FS produces Laura, Petra, Hannah, Olivia, and of course, Alex, our superstar editor. Thank you for listening. Please, please do remember to subscribe and give us a review. We'll have more Blockchain Insider in a couple of weeks' time. Goodbye for now. <laughs>